Thrive, flourish, unleash your buried treasure. This is the Exponentially Empowered Podcast with Joel Vine. Through conscious action and authentic self-connection, empower yourself to write your own script. Here live with Caitlin Scheel. I guess not actually live because podcasts aren't live, but everyone says that. But I guess what I mean is I'm in person with the one and only Caitlin Scheel, who was the first ever guest on Exponentially Empowered. When I asked her about her unschooling experience and dropping out of the eighth grade and her story pitching that to her parents and uh, forging her path in the process and getting a head start in her life and career. And that's proved fruitful. She's recently been engaged and married. Can I say that? Yes, you did say that. So she's uh, she's crushing it in life. But uh, I'm here with her now and we're just going to riff on curiosity. The case, we're going to make the case for curiosity. Because I think this is the seed for fulfillment, for coming alive and having the chance to look back at the end of life and say, yes, that was exciting. That was thrilling, right? In order to have fulfillment, in order to have thrill, I think we need to start with wondering what we're interested in. So I want to unpack that a little bit and... Let's start with let's start with what is the definition of curiosity? Or how do you and it doesn't need to be formal, but Caitlin, what do you how do you look at curiosity? Well, curiosity is going out into the world or a book or your mind and just asking questions who, what, why, when, over and over and over again until you get bored and then finding something else to ask questions about. Yeah, I love that bored. I think boredom is key for curiosity. Yeah, it's underrated. If you're, not, if you're not bored, you're not curious. Like if you're not bored of, if you never experience boredom, you can't be curious, which is what a lot of kids struggle with is that they're never given boredom and thus never figure out what they're curious about. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of imposition on their time from a young age and a lot of do this now and follow directions and a lot of structure, especially these past couple of generations. Yeah. And you dropping out of school, of course, you, you had to avoid that whole cycle of, in the sort of typical conveyor belt of hustle during high school, get your grades, get your extracurriculars, get into college. And there's a lot of scheduling in there, mm-hmm. especially this past couple of generations. And there's not a sense of play. There's not a sense of uh, downtime, which means then boredom can come about and then curiosity can come about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's part of why I dropped out is that I was intellectually ahead of a lot of my peers just because of the, my family support. And I kind of knew there was more than school. And so I got bored within school and I was intelligent enough and just good at memorization I was good at the game of school and thus able to explore things 
in that spare time that I cultivated, kind of, Isaac Morales talked about this, be so good that they ignore you. And that's kind of how a lot of higher, higher ed, or not higher ed, um, more book smart kids survive or keep that flame of curiosity alive is by recapturing their time via just being really good. If you get straight A's, the teacher doesn't care what you do after you finish your test, right? And so you have that oh, downtime. So be so good they do ignore you? Yeah, be so As good. As opposed they... to the book by Cal Newport? Which yeah, is... no, literally be so good. So they so can't good. ignore you. Yeah, be so good that teachers... Feel right, like the teachers you... ignore you. That teachers so... ignore you, yeah. Right, because you were reading on your own a lot, like... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, reading for, for pleasure, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, reading based on curiosity. And yeah. that's something for me, and I remember in particular in middle school, high school, losing that flame quite a bit. Where, and my mom was a young adult librarian, <laughs> so she came up with lots of books. And actually, that probably was one of the ways that I was able to keep some pleasure alive mm -hmm. in the reading process. Because she would bring home some, well, I would read like books about sports and sort of little short novels and that kind of were geared to my age or whatever. And I enjoyed those. Um, but I didn't read too many. Uh, I probably rejected a lot of her offerings. <laughs> and otherwise, just read the books that are assigned to you. Yeah. And that that squelched my interest in reading basically through high school. And then somehow the flame didn't go entirely out. And as I left, after I left high school... Started looking in blogs, articles, blog podcasts, books, and it just goes from there, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the key. Is it starts with a little, a little tickle, right? Mm -hmm. That's what I was going to say about the definition. Is I think it's curiosity is a feeling, right? Mm -hmm. It's a little tickle. Like, what do you want to go do, learn, explore? Because it's exciting in the moment, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean. That's more or less what most kids do before they're in school, right? Like, when you see a little kid, they're just like, huh, what's that? And then they grab it. Or, hey, what's that? And then they crawl across the floor. I mean, that's why kids learn to walk and crawl and move around, because they really want to go explore what they're seeing. Yeah, and it's it's innate in that way, right? Yeah. And it, I don't know, for some reason, though, the past couple of years, I've had this voice that says, are you sure? Like, how do you know, Joel, that curiosity is is born into us? Like, what's the epistemological evidence that curiosity is innate? I think it is pretty safe to say that because we just observe, you observe the typical three-year-old asking, why is the sky blue, etc. Uh... Like what's the I guess what's maybe is, is there an evolutionary uh, reason for curiosity? I mean, what do you think about the, the origins of it? Yeah, I mean, if you're not curious, you don't survive, right? Like, if you're not curious about what made the sound in the bush, then you get eaten by the thing in the bush. If you aren't curious about, you know, why does that animal eat that food? then your tribe might end up in a situation where you don't have any food because you haven't discovered new sources of food. Whereas the tribe that was like, hey, what's that? Why does that monkey eat that? Why did the horses eat that? Whatever. 
they have food and then they live. And then you continue that through many iterations. I would think that that would breed a pretty strong need. Yeah, I think I think you're touching on cause and effect. Yeah. You ask why does that certain animal eat that or basically for from a survival standpoint, it's trying to figure out your environment, your reality in order to best thrive. Yeah. What is it that I can do? As soon as you ask yourself, why is that happening and what can I do? That's curiosity, right? You're trying to figure things out. Yeah, exactly. That's all it is. So there we go. I guess, I guess I'm satisfied now with the explanation. <laughs> uh, and so the, I guess, so the, the challenge becomes in our culture, continuing to nurture that and rekindling it. Because mm-hmm. oftentimes, as we said, it's squelched out in the schooling process and you lose your inner curiosity, you lose your inner creativity, your artistry, your sense of, I'm going to do this because I want to do it. Your sense of entrepreneurship. I mean, going back to the, our ancestors, they're trying to figure out how to best hunt or whatever. That's mm-hmm. entrepreneurship, isn't it? It's yeah. like, here's the environment. I need to solve a problem. I need to eat. I need to feed my tribe. I'm going to take this, you know, this tool that I made and, tie it together with this other tool and then that's going to create this new tool and then I'm going to have a better, more efficient way to hunt and that's entrepreneurship, right? So then that's that's the question is how can we keep that going? So I guess if someone's listening and they've never, and they're kind of in a mindset of just check the boxes that they need to check, be a responsible adult, but... Um, just kind of get through the day and do what they need to do, not necessarily what they want to do in, an, in a curious exploration. Like, how does one get started rekindling? I mean, I would go back to be bored. If yeah. you're working, go take, do use all, you know, use however much vacation time you can and, you know, go out into the woods with some books that you might be interested in, some whatever. Just sit around without your phone. Just be bored for a while. I mean, I think most adults never get a chance to be bored unless you can't rekindle it because you're constantly working on something. Or, you know, if you're in college, use your summer or COVID. Take a semester off because of COVID and just, (laughs) like, be bored. Get off TikTok. Get off Facebook. Get off YouTube. Don't consume anything. You know, it might take you a week of just frank boredom, but eventually you'll be like, you know what I really want to do? Or, you know, what I never thought about? Like, why does grass grow? Like, you might have really dumb questions that you just start thinking of. Like, you think they're dumb. They're not dumb. Just Google it. Learn about it. Get that little hit of dopamine of, oh, wow, fascinating. And then move on. Naturally derived dopamine. Yeah. (laughs) Instead of of TikTok and tech... (laughs) Checking your phone all the time. Uh, it is it is literally nature's gift to you, uh, that dopamine hit that comes from, from wondering. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, that's... You know, I've studied a little bit about dopamine, and dopamine's really about the process of seeking. Yeah. Searching. It's not just when you get... You know, someone clicks like on your, on your Facebook post. It's seeking the like. 
Yeah, exactly. Seeking is, is when the dopamine is produced. Um, and that goes right along with, with curiosity. What is it that you're seeking? And so, yeah, that's, that's just, yeah, it's really powerful and we can't emphasize that enough, I think, with the boredom where, especially in our hyper-connected world, sort of structuring that in, incorporating that into your, to your life of intentional time to unplug, go take a walk or just sit. Uh, and then you can just ask yourself, what do I, what am I curious about? And then maybe you don't know right away, but I, I think if you ask it in a sort of rhetorical way, it'll the answer will come to you. It'll just like start asking more questions and, and even just asking the question, what am I curious about? Now you're being curious, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, just to do real quick reference here to, to, uh, the world of nonviolent communication. You've read that book by Marshall Rosenberg. We had a podcast episode 17 with diving into NVC and the nature of feelings and needs. But I just want to reference, uh, he has Marshall Rosenberg, the founder has this beautiful, what he would do oftentimes in his sessions is play his guitar and sing, uh, in order to not only get his point across, but to create a sort of beauty and infuse it into his message and a poetry into his message. And he had this one line. I remember not even the entire song. He was basically saying, I wonder what you wonder about. I wonder what you wonder about. It's very childlike, you know? Yeah, I mean, that sounds exactly like, like a question parents ask their young kids. Because I know that my dad has asked that of, like, my younger nieces and nephews. Like, as they're toddling around, like, what are you thinking about? What are you doing? Like, what's going on in your head? Like, and it's just unbridled young energy of, huh, what's that? Huh, what's that? And that's just their whole existence is just fascinating. Yeah, I love that because I think there's so much value in, as an adult or as a parent, learning from the kids. Yeah. Rekindling your curiosity, re-sparking re your sort of playful energy, and also because they haven't been, you know... Uh, just inundated with the culture and all the messages from all the different places. <laughs> There's an innocence and a freshness and a purity, in a sense, to their entire being and their mind. And so, and I feel like there's a lot you can just learn from tapping into that, wondering what their mindset is. Like, how does this, how does this little child see the world? Um, yeah, and kids are also free from those expectations that we as adults, like even in entrepreneurial circles or, you know, alternative ed circles, there's this, oh, you're reading to be educated, you're, um, you're like, there's kind of more of a structure or, or an expectation of, oh, I'm going to read this book to learn or, you know, let's finish the book because we have to. Like, that kind of concept of there's successful curiosity and then there's failed curiosity, right? Like, there's that success and failure attached to things that you're doing just because you're curious about it that kids don't have. Kids pick up a paintbrush and they, 
you know, scribble or whatever, and they're like, huh, success. I put color on the page, and that's it. Right? Like, they're just, they don't have this, oh, if I'm not going to be good at this, or, you know, they'll pick up a book, not know how to read it, and be like, huh, success. I flipped these pages. Right? They're just like rolling with it. There's no societal, this is success, this is failure. Yeah, and they're not even saying success. Yeah, they're, right. They're just doing it because yeah. it's intrinsically enjoyable. Um, but I, I love the point about, let, let's, let's, let's hash out a little bit more about the books idea. Because mm-hmm. this is something that I am really get pumped up about is specifically with reading, read what you are interested in, not what you are supposed to read. Yeah. That's exactly what you're referencing with the sort of school mindset of this is a book that is, you know, worth reading because most people have read it or whatever the case may be. I mean, it's not going to be nurturing your sense of happiness just in the moment. If you're trying to force yourself to read books that you think you ought to, and this is what I think is tragic even if there are good intentions, it's tragic what happens in school in terms of these are the, the great books of literature and we're going to ensure that you read them and that, that takes the life out, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that a lot of kids struggle with is developmentally or personality-wise, like, I dis- greatly dislike most of the classics. I love the Greek tragedies and that side of things, but you give me Shakespeare and I want to bash my head into a wall, right? And if I had been in school, I would have just thought, oh, I don't like reading old books, or I would have made more generalizations, whereas it was just like, no, that's just not my personality, that's not my thing. And a lot of kids struggle with that. Like, my my youngest brother, Dylan, he was... He was in our parent. My parents were informed that he didn't like reading and was uncooperative in the library. My mom would take him to the library. He did a just a pile of comic books and read through them, right? Which is not great literature, but he learned. Oh, books can be enjoyable. And so then, by the time he was ten, he was reading like giant World War Two, like textbook style history books because. Hmm. He wanted to, right? Hmm. It wasn't that he was incapable of learning to read a great piece of literature. It was that at seven years old, he was a seven-year-old boy who wanted to read about superheroes. That's so beautiful, yeah. He started with superheroes and got to, you know, historical books, which are, you know, supposedly mature or whatever. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. Those labels and evaluations don't matter. And he still loves comic books. Yeah. But it's funny you mentioned Shakespeare because right before you said Shakespeare, I was thinking Shakespeare. It's a perfect example where for me, I, I that 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 ship like sailed for me. I mean, maybe one day I'll re, I'll recover <laughs> and be curious to read Shakespeare. Um, I mean, I just remember being in ninth grade English class and or tenth grade and just I mean, this is such a common experience. I think we were reading. Was it Roman and Juliet? Maybe it was more than that. Maybe it was a few different plays, but everyone sits in their desk and you take turns reading excerpts around the room, and it's just mind-numbing, right? Did you have that with Shakespeare before you dropped out? No, I was fortunate enough 
to drop out in middle school and just by chance really enjoyed every book my English teachers made us read. And I was, I was the kid who was praised and slightly punished for, like, I'd get the book Monday and read the whole book <laughs> Friday, right? Where... And then they'd be like, well, you're supposed to read it with the class. Supposed to. Yeah. I love that phrase. And and it was actually right when I was dropping out of eighth grade. We had a new book like the like the week before. And the teacher was like, guys, you'll have the whole semester to finish this. And I was like, nah. And I read it all that week and returned it before I dropped out. And was like, yeah, no, I didn't have the whole semester. All right. Well, by the way, let's say opt out instead of drop opt out. out. Yeah, it's not as badass, but okay. Uh, it is pretty badass to drop out. <laughs> I, I do like opt out. Because I it, opted it implies that to... you're doing something new yeah. rather than dropping off the face of the earth. Um, but anyway, that's a moot point. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I do remember I, I in both fourth grade and eighth grade, I performed in like a kids' versions of A Midsummer Night's Dream. I got to do some acting, and that that was fun because, of course, it's more fun to to really engage in a, a theatrical way rather than reading. Um, but even then, like looking back at those memories, I'm like, yeah, that was nice, but how? Uh, it would have been so much better. It, it would have enhanced the experience if it were completely voluntary. Yeah. Right. It wasn't this. This is a program that adults think kids ought to do and is worthwhile and meaningful because the adults say so. But if it had come from a place of authentic interest and I was free to learn, as Peter Gray would say, if I was free to learn and had my time available to myself, and then I might say, okay, I want to spend you know, a couple hours a day. I'm curious about acting and I'm going to sign up for this acting or with this acting organization. And then, oh, they're doing a Midsummer Night's Dream. I'm curious about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would have been so much more alive because it was self-driven versus I've been assigned this. Now I'm going to go learn my lines to be Oberon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought I did well at that. And it it wasn't that there was no value in it. It's just that I had it was doing it from a much more of an extrinsically motivated place because it was, here's the deadline that someone else created for you. You know, and that that really squashes the enjoyment. Yeah, I mean that's a big part of like I was in theater actually for a year, and I liked it okay, but like I really liked it when we got to choose what we were doing. Like I was really great at monologues, like fantastic. Could remember monologues like nobody's business. And then we would have to do plays that, like, the theater teacher decided on. And I never had as much fun with that as when he said, go find a monologue, memorize it, and then present in two weeks or whatever, right? And then that theme, especially in theater, I've seen that repeat over and over again. All my siblings have performed in plays, none of them through the school theater department. They've all been, like, community plays where it's like, oh, that play sounds interesting, let me go try that out. Not here, sit in this class, learn these techniques, etc., etc. And then maybe one day you too will get to stand on the stage for a play you might actually enjoy. Yeah, yeah, the power of choice, and that's pretty, it's pretty important. In and it's very 
closely closely related to the power of curiosity. Uh, um, but I want to let's 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 flesh out a little bit the intrinsic versus extrinsic thing, and a common example, which I've always been fascinated about this as a as a musician, uh, as an educator, and a, and a, like interested in philosophy, psychology, all this stuff. I've always been fascinated about the, the, the idea that uh, the common example of parents forcing their kid to sign up for piano lessons, mm. right? And, and, and so, okay, here, here's the argument. Um, and I've heard this, I've heard this directly from adults. Oh, I wish that my parents had made me take piano lessons, or maybe they took it for a few months and then they rebelled and then their parents gave up and, the, and then the adult says later, oh, I wish that my parents had made me stick it out more. I wish I, or I said stick, I wish that I stuck it out more. And so there's this argument that, uh, the parent needs to enforce that and push that and employ extrinsic motivation because later the adult will be glad mm. because the child isn't necessarily aware of, of all the benefits and they, they don't have the, the awareness, the, the capacity to make an informed decision. The parent knows best. And if you just leave it up to the child, they don't have the long-term scope of, of, of and, and the ability to stick with something long-term that takes patience and consistency, like learning a musical instrument. So the argument is the parent's job is to be the extrinsic motivator and if they don't do that, then you have a, then you have a bunch of adults who regret regret that, or so they say. Yeah, I I would start with so they say because yeah. if they really deeply cared about it, nothing is stopping an adult from going and getting piano lessons, right? Like, but they're busy now. They're they're consumed with the responsibilities. I, <laughs> the kid I, is more, and the kid is young and fresh, and their mind soaks up information. They need to start young. As a piano, as a forced piano lessons <laughs> opt out, um, <laughs> nice. I would say that if I had been forced to stick it out, sure, I would know how to play piano. I'd probably also have a lot of resentment about piano, which is what a lot of people I know who were forced to learn piano, they might, you know, be really good at it, but there's a lot of resentment towards their ability to play it and a lot of trauma attached mm, to their ability to play yeah. it. Much less, like, that's much greater overshadowed than the people I know who, you know, they were 19, 18, 19, 20, 30, 35, 45. I mean, my piano teacher learned to play piano in, like, her 50s or something, mm. right? Where those people are genuinely excited about the instrument or the kids who were like, yeah, no, I want to learn piano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as a, as a classically trained musician myself... Like I said, I've, I put a lot of thought into this, and yeah, I'm, I'm totally radical about giving freedom to the learner. And even though there are so many examples of success stories mm -hmm. of the kid who was compelled to 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 study their instrument in a very disciplined way, maybe they it was like. A rule that they needed to practice an hour or two hours a day and no TV and all these 
constraints that were mm-hmm. imposed upon them from without rather than from within, not chosen. And 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 yes, creativity, skill building requires constraint. The question is, as you're alluding to, what are the unseen costs? What are the secondary costs of that compulsion? Where maybe you are getting the result. You're getting the result of execution, skill building, mastery of the instrument, amazing, beautiful, meaningful, artistic uh, performances, uh, and a skill set that the child can grow up and feel glad that they have a skill set. But what are the secondary costs? What, What are the psychological costs of they sacrifice their need for choice, their, 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 their need for, for play, their need for, for, for um, to, to, to have autonomy and independence and to derive meaning in an in a autonomous, self-chosen way. All that is lost and they're left with potentially a scar because of the compulsion. Yeah, I mean, it's trying to take you back to the premise. The premise is adults should force kids to do things that parents think are valuable for said kid, right? Well, it's just not, it's not just instruments, it's also sports. There are some of the most amazing Olympic athletes that have said, yeah, I was forced to do this for like 10 years, and they either burn out, or they go to like, like Apollo Ono is an Olympic speed skater who has talked about this where he was forced to do it Hmm. and he like really struggled with it and it's not until he like accepted oh I was forced to do this but I'm also really good at it and he became intrinsically motivated it wasn't until that switch happened Hmm. that he was genuinely a happy human being about it and really like that's when he the 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 light the light switch flipped for him and then he built skill faster yeah Yeah. and then he got better and faster and went on to crush his own records etc i mean and that happens with young athletes like with instruments there's very few parents for or like you're going to learn piano so that you can go to juilliard like there's less of this this will be a lifelong thing but with sports forcing your kid to do that the idea is You'll do it now so that you get on the travel team, so that you get on the high school team, so that you get a scholarship, yeah. so that you play on a college team, so that you go pro, right? And what happens is that kid may or may not actually end up going pro, but then they look back on the last 10 years of their life, all their summers are gone, all their weekends are gone, they miss every birthday party, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, where they're just... And that's the premise that you're operating on. If you think you can force your kid to play piano, you're saying that you have the right to take away their joy as a child yeah. and take away their time to explore. Oh, man. I, I, I love this topic so much. I, I could talk forever about this. But I, I'm glad you mentioned athletes because I was going to bring up Andre Agassi. Do you know Andre Agassi's story? No. Tennis player? Uh, no. I've okay. never heard of him. Okay. Um, so one of the best tennis players of all time, um, I think he retired like early 2000s, something like that. So he was in, he was active in the eighties, nineties, but he wrote this amazing autobiography, um, like 2012 or something. He wrote this autobiography called open, which maybe refers to, you know, the U S open or something, but it's really about, he's opening up about his psychological world and how he experienced the game of tennis 
because he was forced from a young age. He's, he is the extreme example of what we're talking about with extrinsic motivation. So his father had a mission to train, uh, train his kids to become elite tennis players. And he, I guess he failed a couple times with, with his first couple kids. And then Andre was like his last hope. And Andre, from age seven, he was, he was, you know, swinging a, a thousand swings a day or and had his whole regimented system from his father imposed upon him to become... I mean, his father literally wanted him to be the number one tennis player in the world. That was the vision. And in the book, Agassi repeatedly declares that as he's training, he hated tennis. Not only when he was a kid, throughout his entire career... He virtually, virtually his entire career, he hated the game of tennis. He kept saying that in the book. I hate tennis. I hated it. Uh, and, and there was this situation where that was his entire life, right? So he, 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 you know, age 13, he was going to Elite Tennis Academy in Florida and just having this abnormal childhood of, of just, just intense training. And he had no choice. He had no choice. So it worked. His father's vision worked. He built the skills. He became elite. And, and he turned pro at like age 15, 16. And he talked about how he turned pro because he didn't know what else to do. He had all this unconscious momentum, unchosen momentum. And he didn't, know, he didn't have other skills. He hadn't had a chance to explore. And he did have the ability to turn pro. And there was still pressure for him to turn pro. So he just turned pro and that was the next step and part of his he was, he was just built up this this frustration resentment and he kind of used that fuel as a competitive fuel mm -hmm. for him to win he sort of channeled it um, but he had some episodes in his life of just battling with psychological issues and it was a really powerful book because it speaks to this idea of Again, like the common argument for these extrinsic motivations from adults is it works, right? It'll work. They'll get the result. And the question, again, is what are the costs yeah. to his happiness? And you mentioned that a minute ago. I mean, is it, about, is it about building a skill? Is it about being able to read Moby Dick? Is it about being able... To say you can do things and you're successful based on someone else's story, or, or or is it about being happy? You know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's what school is. It's hey, go to college, and then and then what? And then people go out in the world and they're like, I have no idea what to do. That's what happens every yeah, time. You're valedictorian. I, you have yeah. amazing accolades. You have your degree. You have. It's like. What makes you happy? What makes you come alive? Yeah. Every time you're under extrinsic motivation for almost, you know, there's the, the very short term of please do this for a candy bar or whatever, where it's like that has its own issues, but especially like long term, hey, I'm going to prevent you from doing anything else that I don't want you to do. You end up with, at some point it has to stop. Right? And at that point, the kid's like, so now what? What do I do? 
and they end up yeah. depressed yeah. or in a job they don't like or they're like or they go into a toxic relationship where someone is telling them what to do yeah. right yeah there's all those effects of if you're not when you're not getting the need for choice and autonomy met that that depression is a natural thing if you're not having agency i mean i heard once that you know one of the most important factors for happiness in a job is autonomy like if you're constantly in a job where you're just a you're a cog in a wheel you're not going to be happy it's just the human experience we need choice um but i want to address one more potential counter argument that the listener might be having which is the child needs the adult to compel them in terms of understanding instilling they might say instilling delayed gratification because maybe the child does really want to learn the cello but they don't have the mental the brain capacity of awareness to see that it it just takes time it takes patience you you know it's going to be a slow slow and steady process and oftentimes what's common is a child wants to quit because they're not seeing the success right away and you know there's not a my answer to that is in terms of parenting philosophy or I don't think there's a a one size fits all answer to that where you know the child you know I I don't know. I mean, I think I think what in that situation, what, what's really important is communication mm-hmm. and validation of the child's feelings, and then maybe making helping them make a plan. Like, okay, well, are you gonna do cello lessons for ten ten weeks straight? Can you do that? You know. Yeah. Um, communication and checking in, and also trying to figure out why why they want to quit. Right? Like the assumption might be yeah. they're not seeing success, but I know that. I would quit, like, I I quit sports because I felt awkward and kind of like an outsider within my volleyball team, um, and I quit a running club for the same reason, where it was just, like, this social anxiety about being viewed as a failure. Because I was so successful academically, I set, that was the bar, where if you're not great, why do it? And... Had my mom had more of a conversation around, hey, you don't have to be the greatest. No one's judging you. Like, if I had had that real conversation of actually dealing with what I was feeling, rather than, no, you're going to do it because I said so, that would have been a much different psychological training for me to be like, okay, like, it's okay to not be great. And I'm not a failure for not being great. Like, having that sort of conversation with me. Especially with kids today who, like, they're punished for failure at every turn. Of course they're going to want to quit when they're not being successful. Right? Mm, yeah, that's a, definitely a factor. Um, but yeah, I think it goes back to avoiding all or nothing thinking. Mm-hmm. Where it's not just... Where uh, um, quitting is something you want to have a conversation about. Where... If the child, after a couple months, is saying he wants to quit, it's not about saying just yes or no. And every situation, yeah. as a parent, I'm going to automatically what say um, ha- allow him to quit um, without any conversation, or force him to not quit without any conversation, right? Because because as as if, as if quitting is a 
is a, you know, you need, it's a virtue to always stick things out. Yeah. Um, what, what's key is, as you said, communication, because maybe the child just needs a little bit of empathy for their frustration and then actually they don't want to quit. Um, Absolutely. Maybe they, you can make, make a game plan for how you want to go. But always having, I think, always having the option in, in, in not, not communicating to the child that quitting is bad. And this is pretty common in our culture. Like, you need to, to, to stick things out and the ability to complete things. Even going back to books, like, the ability to finish a book is, is if you quit earlier, if you quit early, then there's something wrong with you. Yeah. Uh, there's actually, no, there's nothing wrong if you want to quit. But it is worth, as a parent, I think, as an adult, it's worth having a conversation um, about about the power of patience, about the nature of, of, of letting things accumulate over time and trusting the process. And that can be a great lesson. So, you know, there's not an easy answer. Um, but if we go back to the fundamentals and... If from a young age, from, from birth, the child is given a lot of trust, autonomy, choice, they're going to already be learning a lot about what, what works for them. As opposed to if a kid goes through school for 10 years, then all of a sudden, even if, even if it's just going through school and then they're trying to do piano lessons on the side, that's a whole different context. Yeah. Because now they're in school eight hours a day. Maybe they don't want to do piano lessons because they're tired from school. Absolutely, it, 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 it's different if if, if they have the, the 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 freedom and their time, then it's a whole other premise, right? Exactly, and it's also like having those conversations on the front end too. Like if a kid says, "Hey, I want to sign up for this sport or the these lessons," you know, setting up to where, okay, well, let's try it for. Do you want to commit to three months? Do you want to try it for three months? And then we'll check in, like setting up that premise of, hey, let's commit to something on the front end, but there's like an end date. Like here, you know, if it's not working, it's not working. If it's working, it's working and we'll keep doing it, right? Almost nowhere else do you have, like adults don't have this perpetual, like, I must do this thing I hate forever or, like, especially piano lessons, right? That was a big thing for me. I did them for, like, six months. And I was like, okay, I'm done now. This is... Had my fill of this. And it was like, unless you go on perpetually doing piano lessons, at some point you must quit. And then quitting is punishment, right? And it's the same thing with sports. If you start sports young, and then you don't want to do basketball the next year, and then your parents are like, why are you quitting basketball? And it's like, no... You never committed to do basketball for the rest of your life, right? Where it's having that premise of no perpetual commitments. Because you can't commit to something forever. Yeah, and if you make those contracts or, or agreements or plans of, hey, well, let's try this for three months. Even then, like, if it's two months in, yeah. there's nothing stopping you from... You can always leave your plan. You're always free. It's just like... Sometimes it's helpful to have in your mind a sort of end game and I'm going to try this out um, and then just let my, maybe you just want to test it out and that's a challenge for yourself. If I do it for three months and then I can decide later. Um, but another key point here is opportunity cost. If you're forcing yourself or the parent's forcing the child to do something, then that means they're not doing something that they are interested in doing. Exactly. 
you know, so it goes back to, to, to curiosity because, uh, if you figure out through experimentation that you don't like something, now you put it down and go find something you like. If you don't like the book, it's okay. Put it down. And I still have it in me like this, this like completest psychology. I like, I do like finishing books. Um, but I have, uh, recently put down a couple books because I've realized the opportunity cost. Oh, well, there's like a million books I do want to read. I'm going to put this down and get to that. And I'm excited about that. And yeah, there's so much power you can build from there. So I just want to, this has been awesome. Um, I just want to have like a concluding remark about, I want to start, just talk a little bit about how curiosity can grow into maybe career or life purpose or we love this phrase like do what makes you come alive you know um i don't know because oftentimes we have in our culture we're, we're told to find your passion right and curiosity isn't really underscored but don't you think that curiosity might be the first step i mean yeah i don't know how you can find something you're passionate about if you don't just because that's such a big broad thing that like youth today are bombarded with find your passion find your passion but really it should be ask a question ask another question continue asking questions and exploring and testing out and trying and just being curious about the world until you're like oh i really enjoy this and then just really enjoy that for a while and then go on and on and on and on and repeat just don't do stuff you hate yeah. Continue asking questions. You'll get somewhere you really enjoy. Yeah, I mean, think about it from just a macro perspective of, okay, first of all, leave the things, really, do quit the things that suck because then you open up time in your life. And now, explore your curiosities and it, if you follow that and allow it to snowball, then maybe that can lead to new opportunities and then you, you go meet new people who also have that interest and then, that, that just snowballs and, and maybe over time your life can be a full life of full a full expression of who you are and what really makes you excited where it all starts with a little kindling of that flame and then that fire can really roar over time so ah, that's what it's all about right happiness <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been this has been awesome, Caitlin, as usual. Um, anywhere you want to send the listener to go find you. I know you're on Twitter. What's your handle? Um, Kate C A I T Sheel S C H E E L. Um, yeah, Twitter's a great spot if you want to have really cool conversations with me. Um, and then you can also just email me direct last name dot first name at gmail dot com. So, yeah, shield.caitlin, a little, uh, little backwards there, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> contrarian. <laughs>